Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday october 7th 2011 this week episode 222 comes to you from studio c in beautiful mckees rocks pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes back with me in the studio this week is the z-man cliff slotnick yeah it's good to be back joe welcome back cliff and of course we now also have valerie bender with us here this week val hi nice to be here good to have you back again and at the controls is our engineer austin stone cold know that All right, today's segments include the IAQ Radio Trivia Question, an interview with Dr. Jay Portnoy, Children's Mercy Hospital and Clinics out of Kansas City, Missouri. We will have our halftime, and then we will go back to the interview and finish as usual with our roundup and our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Before we get started, we have to thank our marquee sponsors. Our newest marquee sponsor is Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, you can listen live by following the link on your show invitation or going to the iaqradio.com website and just go to the button at the top that says Go To Show. You can join the talk show. They have the pro version and the regular version. With uh, pro, I think you have to actually uh, set up your computer. Otherwise, just hit join as guest and you don't have to worry about it. You can also download the show from our website and of course from iTunes. Don't forget we have ABIH certification maintenance points, IICRC continuing education credits and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me and request a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question thanks joe 
When a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answers easy, email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. Sorry, no correct answers last week. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, October 7th, 2011 has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question. In terms of common kitchen measurements, such as teaspoons, tablespoons, and cups, how much assorted particles like dust, pollen, tar, smoke, and microorganisms do we inhale every day? Back to you, Joe. All right. Today's guest is J.M. Portnoy, M.D. He's also a fellow of the American College of uh, Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology. He's the chief section of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology at Children's Mercy Hospital and clinics in Kansas City. He's also a past president of the American College of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology, and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine. Dr. Portnoy has been immersed within and helping to lead the movement to ensure the environmental component of illness gets the attention it deserves. He leads one of the most active teams of IAQ consultants and allied health professionals in the world, performing home and school health assessments. He's tirelessly worked to help bridge the gap between the indoor environmental investigation remediation industry and health professionals. We are thrilled to have him here with us this week. We have some intro music. What's the matter? What's the matter? I've got asthma and I can't breathe. I went to the doctor and he gave me one of these. Shh, shh. Okay, Dr. Portnoy, do we have you on the line? Uh, you certainly do. Hi, Joe. <laughs> great, thanks. And, and thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. I know you've been leading the charge on this issue for years, and we really appreciate you joining us this week. Uh, I'm honored to have been asked. But by the way, that trivia question you asked about how many particles are inhaled, I, I don't know the answer to that, but my, my job is actually to, to treat the patient's uh, health problems that occur as a result of inhaling those particles. Right. Well, what we try to do every week is get a trivia question and music that's directly related to the guest. Right, right. Now, I'm, I want to know first a little bit about your role at Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics. I'm still, I know we've met before and I, I know some of your staff really well, but I'm not quite sure what the chief of the section of allergy, asthma, and immunology does. Well, I'm in charge of the whole section. My job is, you know, just managing and to that's partly administrative, although I'm a physician and I take care of patients, too. 
The allergy section is one of 15 medical sections in the Department of Pediatrics here at Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics. Uh, we have like cardiology, neurology, kidney doctors, and so on. And then we also have allergists. In fact, we have seven board-certified allergists on our staff, five allergy fellows who are pe people being trained to become allergists, two nurse practitioners, and a number of research personnel. So those are the medical people. However, the thing that I think you're more interested in is this unique feature we have in our section, and that is we have an environmental health team, which is something most children hospitals do not have. And okay. Go ahead, Cliff. Okay, doctor, how many people work in the group that does home and school health assessment? Right. We, uh, well, Kevin Kennedy is our director, uh, and uh, he has three environmental hygienists who work for him two outreach coordinators, a study coordinator, and an administrative assistant. Uh, so it's actually a fairly large team in the scope of things. Hospitals, like I said, don't normally have environmental health programs, so this is a fairly large uh, group. It's, it's divided into environmental hygienists who actually do the home assessments, uh, outreach coordinators who are medical people, so they examine the patients, recruit them, and will interact with the patients uh, with respect to their health problems. And then the study coordinator is somebody who can actually help enroll these patients in clinical trials to determine whether the things that we do with the environment actually work or not. So it's a part of a research protocol. You know, Joe and I are both native Pittsburghers, and growing up in Pittsburgh, uh, our city was not one uh, known for good indoor air quality, you know, with all the steel mills and uh, heavy industry that was here. Why does Kansas City have such a problem? Is there something unique about the geography there? Well, I don't know that Kansas City is any worse than any place else. The, the bottom line is every place that I visit claims to be the allergy capital of the world. Uh, so everybody thinks that they're really bad. Uh, fortunately for allergists, uh, pretty much every place does have a lot of allergies, which is unfortunate for allergy sufferers. So there is no place where air quality is really wonderful. I, I suppose national parks or something like that. Uh, Kansas City um, does have some unique uh, geographic issues. We're, it's very humid here, so there's a lot of mold. Uh, we have a lot of uh, gra grass pollen uh, and uh, weed pollen that uh, pollinates at different times of the year. Uh, we don't have a lot of tree pollen, though, because we're on the prairie, so the, the air that blows in from the west doesn't contain that. Those are mostly outdoor allergens. Uh, the focus that uh, I've really taken an interest in is indoors because uh, when the outdoor allergens are a problem, most people try to take refuge inside of their houses to escape the outdoor problems. Uh, but if the indoor air quality is worse than the outdoor, they're actually not solving their problems. So I, I, we need to take a very close look at what types of things people are being exposed to when they go into their houses. Val, do you have a question? Yeah. Um, are there any other programs in the country you are aware of that are as active as your particular group? Uh, there are programs that do a lot of work with environmental health. I know like Cincinnati and Hopkins and Harvard. But what we've done um, that I think is unique is we've combined all of those together into a medical service. So we're trying to apply it and mainstream it uh, so that rather than being a niche product or something that's unusual, it's actually mainstream. Patients who come to see us can have an environmental assessment as a routine part of their medical care, uh, which, which I think is a unique feature. And 
I guess you. I want to go a little bit into your role as the president of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I guess that was from 2007 until 2008 or maybe during that two-year period. And I assume part of your goal as president was to have others take a look at the program you have and see if maybe you could gain some acceptance in other areas of the country. Was that, am I accurate in saying that was part of your goal there? And if so, how successful have you been? It was definitely a big part of my long-term goal. I wanted to mainstream the uh, combination of environmental health um, with uh, environmental assessment so that the physicians and the environmental health experts, the professionals, can work together. It's something that hasn't happened before, even though allergists are the environmental experts in terms of what things in the environment trigger health problems. We've never had this connection with environmental health professionals who could do the home assessments to tell us what our patients are exposed to and what to do about it. And so my goal was to combine those together and mainstream it so that it would become a standard part of medical practice. It's sort of like if I wanted to get an x-ray, I would consult with my radiology colleagues and I would ask them, well, what x-ray should I do? What what imaging and so on, and they would recommend something, and I would send my patient down, and then they would send me back a recommendation. What I'd like to see is an environmental health uh, test where I would consult with my environmental health colleagues, my professional colleagues in the environmental uh, health assessment arena. Uh, I would, they would recommend what kinds of assessments need to be done. Uh, I would send my patients, or my patients would con- contract with them. They would do the home assessment, generate the report, send it back to me, and I can use that information with my patients to improve their health. So it's the idea of trying to mainstream it, make it so that it's a standard part of medical practice. And that's not something that's been available up until now. And how successful have you been on, on the path toward getting gaining this acceptance? Well, fortunately, being an allergist, I had a, uh, a, a group of uh, professionals who were receptive to this message. Allergists are the environment people. That's why we went in uh, to out the field of allergy to begin with. Uh, so they're very interested in it. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of interest. Um, but the, the real questions are: How do we find people to do the home assessments? And even more important, how do we get it paid for? And that's really where the challenge is. So I've had a number of different steps that needed to take place. One of the steps was to define what a home assessment actually is, a standardized approach, so that when I have a patient who has a health problem and I try to identify an environmental health specialist to do the assessment, uh, how do I identify who that person is and uh, how do I know which patients to send to that person? Uh, What things should that person do in order to determine whether what's causing my patient's health problems? What kinds of information should they send back to me, and how do I interpret those results? Those are all the questions that need to be asked and addressed, and we're starting to do that process right now by developing a series of practice parameters that describe the medical management of environmental health problems, uh, though we haven't yet gotten to the building science part. Uh, we, we have included in our work group a uh, number of people who are from the environmental uh, uh, community. So we have health, environmental health professionals working with us, medical people, because I don't know much about environment. The environment people don't know much about medical. We, we, if we work together, we can learn each other's vocabulary and interact more successfully. So we've at least gotten a start. Uh, that process is moving forward. Uh, we haven't even 
talked about how to get it paid for. We just don't know how to do that yet. But my suspicion is that if health plans see that it's successful, that it's standardized, and that there are outcomes that are reproducible and meaningful for the health of the patients, that they will, in fact, consider the possibility of paying for it. You know, this we, we can go into a little more about the, the terminology and the interaction between the, the people in the field doing the assessments and, and the health professionals. But before we do, I think maybe it would help if you were able to give us a, a, a concrete example of a patient and a patient who was assisted by one of these environmental health assessments, can, without obviously you know, n naming names or anything like that, but can you give us a general idea of, of how that would work when it works well? Why don't I describe the poster child? This is the first child that I w used to go around and, and talk about when I was trying to, to whip up support and interest in this area. Um, what happened was I had this child, he was 15 months old, he had been in the hospital 12 times and the emergency room 18 times in a 15-month period, which is just outrageous. Just think about a 15-month-old being in the hospital and emergency room that frequently. And it was all for asthma, couldn't breathe. Breathing is not optional. I recommend it to all of my patients. <laughs> this patient was not able to breathe. And it wasn't because there was something wrong with his lungs. It was because there was something wrong with his environment that was interacting with his body to make it so that he couldn't breathe. Uh, I didn't have a good way of figuring out what that was, but it turns out one of my patients was an industrial hygienist. And uh, we were just talking about, um, you know, when I was seeing her child for his asthma, and uh, I, I was talking to her about these issues that I had, and she says, well, maybe I could work with you part-time to try to figure out how to determine what's in the environment that might be causing these problems. Um, I went to our executive medical director to see if he could hire, if I could hire a part-time industrial hygienist. He sort, sort of gave me a scowl because that's not something children's hospitals do, but he actually agreed to let me do this. Uh, and we went out and did a home assessment on this patient. We didn't really know what we were doing. It was new at the time. The protocols weren't established, but it was very clear right from the beginning there were things in this child's home that would make it impossible to manage his asthma medically. There was no way we were going to get his asthma under good control. But we found a lot of environmental problems, major problems. And uh, because of these problems, we were able to go to the city. We got uh, uh, some, so some uh, community resources to help them uh, try to remediate some of the problems. But ultimately, we had to move the family into Section 8 housing, which is subsidized. And it was a much cleaner environment. As soon as he moved into that environment, he stopped going to the emergency room, no, no hospitalizations in over a year. Uh, his life totally turned around, and he was able to use a lot less medicine. So, so I would consider that to be a, a significant success story. It's just one example, uh, and since then we've seen many examples of patients who have moved into environments that were you know, less unhealthy and more healthy, and uh, their medical conditions really do improve. Do you recall what the triggers were in that poster child case? Oh, gosh, they had uh, cockroaches crawling around. They actually had raw sewage in their basement because the sewer had, had backed up. The, the bathroom uh, uh, plumbing wasn't caulked, so there was mold growing there. Uh, there was no ventilation. They actually had vents that were blocked off, so there was no, no airflow in, in the house. Uh, of course, there was cigarette smoking, which, which is a big problem, and, and you have to work on that 
separately from the environment because if they move to a new place, the smoking will go with them. So that we had to fix that. Uh, they, they had a rodent infestation. Um, basically, the air in the basement was so difficult to breathe. Our uh, and, uh, and hygienists couldn't stay in the basement for more than about 15 minutes. He had to come up for air, if you will. Wow. That kind of environment is not some place where a 15-month-old could possibly be helping. Yeah, I'm curious, with, with all of your experience in this area, what what seems to be the triggers that most commonly end up being something you need to fix or, or that, that homeowners or... Uh, apartment building managers, owners, etc. What's the most common problem? Uh, poor ventilation, uh, high particles. Uh, we see a lot of mold. We see a lot of leakage. Tobacco smoke, unfortunately, is still all too common. And uh, we see a lot of rodent and insect infestations in inner city homes. Uh, most of many of the homes that we see are just generally decaying. There's, there's no maintenance. So if a home is not maintained for long periods of time, the whole home starts to decay into itself. And so the particle counts just go sky high. Uh, there are a lot of bioparticulates, endotoxins, and things like that that are in the house dust that are very irritating and pro-inflammatory. And the combination of all of those things just make it impossible for a family to be able to live in the house. Uh, in some cases, if there are specific things that can be fixed, uh, occasionally we'll just find like the, the pipes haven't been tightened so that the, the U-drain is leaking and causing mold to grow, that, that we can fix those types of things. But if it's a systemic problem in a house, it, it's really hard to get a handle on that. In some cases, the house just has to be raised to the ground and, and rebuilt. <laughs> Interesting. I, I, I got Cliff, a, go ahead. Actually, I, I was just thinking about this. Because of what you do, uh, I'm just wondering whether you could opine on this hemosiderosis, you know, the bleeding lungs in infants, because it would seem that, uh, have you seen any cases in your hospital? We saw one case, and it was shortly after Dor Dearborn wrote his series of cases. It was a Cleveland, series of patients in Cleveland who came in with bleeding into their lungs. Uh, Dor Dearborn was a pulmonologist in, in Cleveland, and he wanted to know what might be contributing to this. They went out and did home assessments and found that there was an increased incidence of uh, presence of mold and tobacco smoke in the homes of the patients with the uh, uh, bleeding into their lungs versus patients who didn't have bleeding into their lungs as a control group. Um, in fact, they, they specifically found an increased risk uh, incidence of stachybotrys, which is a, a so-called black mold that, uh, that you hear about all the time. Now. There's a lot of controversy about that study because the EPA reevaluated it and found that some of the control group patients weren't really a a accurate control groups, so they reduced the statistics, but it still was statistically significant. It didn't show a cause and effect. What it showed was an association, uh, and we, we actually do see stachybotrys in about 20 to 30 percent of the homes that we assess. It's not, I don't think stachybotrys by itself causes the chemosiderosis or the, the bleeding into the lungs. I think it's a marker for a highly contaminated environment because you don't find stachybotrys in an environment unless it's really grossly contaminated. You know, I'm curious, do you, it sounds like a lot of your work is in housing that's pretty run down. Do you have any specific scenarios from from homes that were actually in pretty good shape and it was a little more difficult to determine what what the issue was? Um, we, we have. We, we actually had um, 
one house where a tile had blown off in a storm and water was leaking down into the attic and then ran down into a closet and it eventually uh, caused a lot of problems. That, that was actually the one patient with the hemosiderosis we had because Tachybotrys was then growing in that patient's bedroom. I can cause and effect, it's hard to say. Many uh, houses in upper income families will basically suffer from flaws in either design or installation, uh, things like windows that are put in backwards or with the flashing is, is missing. Uh, those are really common problems. We see a lot of vapor barrier issues, uh, and we see still see issues with ventilation, too. The, the ventilation systems are installed, but they're either not balanced or they're not connected properly. There, there, there's a lot of those types of issues. Uh, I'm saying this as a physician, by the way. I'm not an expert in building science, but I'm hopefully I'm getting... Okay, good. Now, you know, I've got Val Bender here. I, Val, you told me you had some problems with asthma when you were younger. Did you have anything that, that you wanted to ask the doctor while you're here? I know that there's a couple of questions we have, but I didn't know if you had wanted to add something. Yeah, you know, when I was younger, I had childhood asthma that was actually pretty bad. Um, I had to take an aerosol treatment four to five times a day. Um, and we actually moved uh, during that time, and then it got better. I was wondering, do you ha show a difference in general geographic locations in improvement in asthma? Well, that, that's the thing that is often asked. Is there a place I should live that's got less allergens than where I currently live? And the, the reality is most places have allergens in them, and if you move from one place to another, you may not be allergic to the allergens in the new place, but you'll become allergic to them over time. The classical example is people who move from Kansas City to Arizona, where it's dry and there's not a lot of allergens. But they have olive tree pollen and, and Bermuda grass, and cat allergen is actually the number one indoor allergen in, in Arizona. People seem to like cats for some reason. So, uh, you know, and you'll become allergic to those things after you've been living there for a while. So fascinating. There's no getting away from it. Allergens are everywhere. Right, right. I call it I call it job security. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. And I'm curious, are are you seeing more people getting into the allergy and asthma side of, you know, the medical profession these days or is that, you know, still leveled off or you know, is it becoming it seems like with the weather and the the issues we've had with disasters and we're getting a lot more calls on water damage issues. There seems to be a need. Is it being fulfilled? Um, there aren't enough allergy specialists being trained right now, um, So, but there is a, a huge demand. Primary care doctors have, have sort of uh, ended up doing a lot of the allergy work, even though they may or may not either be trained or even all that interested in doing as much of it. Uh, so we do need more allergy specialists to be trained. Uh, like I said, we have five allergy fellows in our program, so we're doing our part to train the next generation of allergists. It's an absolutely fascinating field. It's just so interesting to, uh, uh, we do the daily pollen and mold count. Uh, patients come in wanting to know what in the environment is triggering their symptoms. It's, it's really the nexus between the environment and health, and, and it's just a fascinating field. It's very rewarding, uh, and you can do a lot of good. Uh, so, so I would say the answer to your question is yes, uh, there is an increasing need for allergists. Uh, there's an increasing amount of allergy to be treated, and um, you know, let's, let's get at it. And let's work together, and we'll talk more about that in the second half. But before we do, we're going to have to put it on hold for just a moment and thank our sponsors. We'll be right back with Dr. Jay Portnoy.
Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. And our newest marquee sponsor is Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at netclaimsnow.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. All right, let's start the second half of our interview with Dr. Jay Portnoy. Dr. Portnoy, do we have you back on the line? certainly do. Great. Cliff, did you want to no, no, take a uh, Val? Okay, go ahead, Val. Uh, Dr. Portnoy, I was wondering, could you tell us a little more about the Conference Online Allergy Program? Okay, Conference on, it's, it's, the abbreviation is COLA, C-O-L-A, which stands for Conference Online Allergy. And uh, it was my one of my uh, items on, as a president of the American College of Allergy, I wanted to create a forum for allergists to be able to interact with each other. Uh, because the only time that we get to talk to each other is when we go to these national meetings. Otherwise, uh, many allergists are kind of out in isolation. They don't really have a place where they can you know, learn from each other and network and, and uh, you know, have that kind of a collegial interaction that you need. Uh, so I, I decided to set up a series of online conferences uh, in training programs where uh, allergists could log in, uh, join the conference that was being held at that training program and become part of the group. And it's like little families. Uh, and if these were held on a regular basis, uh, we could all network and learn from each other and have an ongoing uh, um, uh, con connection. Uh, and and that, that was the program that I came up with uh, as the president of the college. Since then, uh, we haven't had very many programs that have been doing that on a regular basis. But I can say that our program for the last four years has had four one-hour conferences every week, two on Monday and two on Friday, um, where we, uh, we have didactic conferences, we have meet professor, we have journal clubs, we just interact with each other and learn. Uh, we record them, and then we post all of the recordings on iTunes, and on, we now have a YouTube channel. Um, so this has become a really great way to uh, spread information, get the word out, learn from each other. And 
most important thing is it's completely free. There's absolutely no charge for it. And I, I didn't notice, but did you mention how people would access that? I assume it's free to anybody. Free to anybody, anybody on the planet. Um, and so if you're interested in joining, uh, go to, uh, there's a number of ways you can do that. You can go to the American College of Allergies website, acaai.org, and right on the front page is a link to COLA. You click on that, and it'll take you to the COLA homepage. You can also go to childrensmercy.org, Slash cola, uh, and that's uh, it's all one word: childrensmercy.org/cola. And you'll see a list of all of the topics that are coming up. And next to each one is a little button. You click on it, and your computer just connects automatically to cola. It has links to iTunes. If you go to iTunes and just search for cola allergy, you'll you'll find it. If you search just for cola by itself, you'll learn about soft drinks, which is not <laughs> probably not what you want. Same thing with YouTube now. You can go to YouTube, type cola allergy, and you'll see, a, like, I think there's 50 or 60 one-hour-long conferences. But they're all allergy-related. Many of them may not be that much of interest to indoor air quality experts, but there are conferences on allergens and measurements and uh, doing home assessments and health effects of environmental issues and so on that uh, you can pick and choose the ones that might be of interest to you. Okay, Cliff? Yeah, actually, I want to describe an experience. You know, most people that go to a doctor get there early for the appointment. They got to wait 30, 40 minutes, whatever. The doctor comes out, sees them oftentimes for, you know, five or 10 minutes. How do your peers react to this intensive program that you have where, uh, you know, you're spending a lot of time? with these people how do you know how do you get compensated for it i, I guess financially so you're describing your experience with many primary care physicians who have to see 40 patients a day right so if you go to an allergist as a new patient most allergists will give you an hour okay they'll spend a lot of time asking about your environment what effect it has on your health what health problems you have and try to, to get to that link, you, you can't do that in 15 minutes. And every allergist knows that. So we, we routinely, as a profession, uh, spend a lot of time with our patients. It's one of the things we really pride ourselves on. Uh, and if the patient needs something done about their environment, a home assessment or whatever, uh, allergists are the ones who know how to do that. And, and they have an interest in it. And so that, that's why I think that the... Uh, the collaboration between our two specialties is particularly uh, relevant because it's, it's, it's just ripe for developing into something really big. So, so I, I assume if, you know, if we had IAQ practitioners out there that were getting questions about who to see, you know, there, there's people who are having uh, some kind of health problem, they think it might be related to their environment, and they want to know who to see, would you refer them, tell them you should go see an allergist? If they have a question about whether the environment is having an effect on their health, then I would say so, yeah. Okay. And now, go ahead, Cliff. I, I really have a follow-up question to it. You know, um, last week's program, I was off for uh, the holiday, and uh, I listened to it. And one of the things that this industrial hygienist commented on is that 75% or more times when he would do uh, an inspection of a home, he could tell what was wrong and really didn't need to get involved with sampling on site. Uh, do, what do you do in terms of sampling? Uh, 
what do you have the hygienists do in terms of sampling, or do you just have them rely on you know their 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 senses, their intuition, and their experience? Well, you're getting at the core thing, and that is, can we standardize the approach that we use? Um, obviously, the first thing is the visual walkthrough, which is what you were describing, and most of the time, that's all it takes. And in fact, most cases, we don't even need to go to the home. We can just talk to the patients. And just by talking to them, figure out what's going on and give them some recommendations. Uh, the visual walkthrough is almost always diagnostic. But then as a physician, when I talk to the patient and get the history, that almost always tells me what I need to do with them. I don't have to do tests. Right. Same thing. And so I think it's very analogous. Um, our group teaches the uh, Healthy Homes Practitioner course that was set up by the National Center for Healthy Housing. They're working on a level two course now, which gets in, into the sampling technologies. But when you start talking about sampling, that can be very expensive and laborious and time consuming. So we really feel strongly that you develop hypotheses. Once you've done the visual walkthrough, you know what the health problem is, you develop hypotheses of what the likely cause is, and then you design a sampling protocol uh, to specifically address those particular hypotheses. So you're not sampling everything all the time. You're doing specific things with a specific reason, and it's very targeted. So the information you get is highly likely to be helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Portnoy, we, we talked about the fact that there aren't enough allergists, so the MDs are oftentimes handling these concerns that patients have, and they may have to do it in 10 to 15 minutes because that's the caseload. You know, that's the patient load. I'm wondering... Uh, is there any, are you working toward trying to help the MDs understand this issue any better? Is there like a parallel group of people looking at that side of the, uh, I don't know, I want to call it the industry, the healthcare uh, industry, I guess? Or are you pretty much focused on the allergy folks and not sure what the MD side is doing? Um, well, we do a lot of uh, education of primary care doctors. Pro uh, it's, it's really important, but most of the time, they want me to talk about asthma and hay fever and you know, eczema and, and medical conditions, but I always put into there information about the environment. And I think any allergist who talks to primary care doctors does that. So we're, we're feeding them information about the environment, whether they like it or not, because it's just that important. And I, I appreciate you correcting me, primary care, I mean, you're both MDs, uh, but they specialize in primary care and you specialize in, in allergy and asthma. Is that accurate? That's right. We're, we're all either MDs or DOs. Uh, I happen to be an MD. Uh, the primary care doctors pri usually specialize in pediatrics or internal medicine or family pra practice. And I, I specialize in pediatrics. And then I did it in an additional couple of years specializing in allergy and immunology, so it's a separate fellowship in addition to primary care fellowship. Uh, so I, I, I tell my kids I graduated from 25th grade. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I actually maybe made one of the common mistakes that uh, Val's going to ask you about here, and that's a little bit about terminology. Val? Yes. Uh, what medical terminology would you say is commonly misused by IEQ professionals? I don't know that medical terminology is misused. I don't actually hear a lot of medical terminology used by IAQ professionals. Uh, for, the, for the most part, the biggest errors I see are when IAQ professionals try to make health assessments about the patient. They'll tell the patient, well, this is 
unhealthy for you or that's a dangerous amount and it's going to harm you or, or whatever. And they're, they're not really health professionals. So I tell, we tell our industrial hygienists to um, uh, do the home assessments, stick to the building science and the information that they have, and reserve any health interpretations for the medical professionals. Once I receive the reports, then we make the we interpret them in a medically relevant way for the patient. So by keeping those things separate, I think it really helps. Now, but to expand on that, the terminology uh, I think that needs to be better defined is the terminology that the environmental health uh, field is using. Uh, we medical doctors, and my understanding is many environmental health experts too, don't understand specifically terms like abatement, remediation, um, uh, mitigation. I mean, what do those things all mean, and how do you uh, specifically use those terms in a very precise way? They, they seem to be somewhat ambiguous and, uh, and unclear. Uh, so that's one of the things that our practice parameters are trying to work on is to come up with a standardized definition for each of these things so that when I say that I want an avoidance measure or an, a remediation or an abatement, that, that we all know exactly what that means. Yeah, I think that's obviously a problem within, amongst ourselves. I mean, if you do asbestos abatement, we do mold remediation, we do water damage restoration. Right. I, I, think, I think sometimes the term determines how much you can get paid to do something <laughs> or whether or not you can get paid to do something you know in terms of you know a lot of times today there are issues with covering mold claims however water damage uh, is covered and sewage intrusions may be covered and you know there's some ways are around it but I think uh, the, the terminology you're right you know we really need to zero in on it and yeah, no doctors are the same way. We we use terminology to get paid more too. They get paid more if you have cirrhosis than if you have dry skin. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. Now, what about? I wanted to go before we go to our roundup. We do a roundup here, and I'm going to start that a little early today because I want to get Doctor Wow in here. I know he'll have some comments, but. I also, before we go to that, wanted to go to the next level with respect to these um, terminology issues we have between the health practitioners and, and the environmental assessment folks. When it comes to reports and people writing reports, are there any tips you can give the IAQ professionals out there for how to write a better report that an MD or an, allerg an allergist or a primary care physician would would understand better or, or help them with you know understanding the report a little better yeah you've hit a really key issue because if i can't figure out what the report means i'm not going to be able to help guide my patients to get their health improved so um, having a standardized report format i think is one of the most important things because then we can teach all the doctors how to interpret that report if there's a hundred different formats and we can't teach them what to do um, I like to see a report that has a picture of the of the environment, uh, a lot of pictures because I'm a visual person. If I can see a picture of what the home looks like, uh, the date when the visit took place, a, a uh, background of why the visit was made, you know, when, who contacted who, and you know what the problems were, uh, a scope of work, of work, what was actually done uh, and what wasn't done. Uh, so, and then I like to see a room by room description of each room that was evaluated. We, we generate a report where we have a picture of each room, and within the room we assess all of the different aspects. There's, there's safety, there's air quality, there's uh, 
Uh, there's a whole bunch of different parameters that are evaluated, uh, and we even color code them. Green is good, yellow is caution, red is there's something wrong. Uh, and, and then there are pages that talk about the, uh, you know, what recommendations, what can you do to fix these problems uh, in, in order. So the, uh, the most effective thing is, is first, and you're not just doing everything. Uh, and then if there are analytical results, they're clearly demarcated in terms of, you know, spores per cubic meter of air. And, you know, I'd like to see the raw numbers, too. So if a single spore is multiplied by 300-fold, then I know that it may not actually be a different value than, than a 250 value. Uh, and, and I like to see how the analytical work was done, what the normal values were, and uh, some references that, that tell me uh, that, you know, what the, the basis was for the interpretations. So that, that's the kind of uh, report that when I get that, I know exactly what to do. I can interpret it. I can sit down with my patients, go through it with them, and, and they, they get a lot out of it. It can be highly valuable. You know, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, people, industrial hygiene people or indoor air quality people shouldn't be making health judgments, essentially. But, right. you know, being out in the field, we get asked all the time. You know, and, and it's really difficult to not at least say, well, you know, this doesn't look like the best, the, the optimum conditions here. And we certainly think you should fix this or fix that. But how far can you go? I mean, can you... You know, at least at a minimum. Say that, yeah, you can say that this value is above the threshold that's recommended by this health department. I mean, those things are statements of fact. So that's, you know, but, you know, saying, well, this is why your asthma is worse, well, that, that, you don't really know that that's that. So it's, it's, it's sort of a difference in the nuance. You know, health, health implications of what you're doing may be factual, and then you can certainly talk about that. But whether the patient should get rid of their cat. Uh, or, you know, what they should do or what effect it's actually having on their specific health is something that ought to be avoided just because you don't really know that that's, that's true. There's so many factors that, that go into that. All right. Let's, let's go to our roundup here. We'll bring in Dr. Dietrich Wow, our technical director, and we'll finish up. We'll go around the table one more time. Dr. Portnoy, ask one final question, and we really appreciate you hanging in there with us today. It's been very interesting. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw hide. Yeah. Do we have our intro music for the good doctor? There we go. All right. Good day, Dieter. How are you? I am just fine. How are you? Great, thank you. And we've got Dr. Portnoy back on the line, and maybe you two could do a little uh, little chat together here for a moment. <laughs> I listen very, very carefully, and I like him very much, and even though I have... A couple of comments pertaining to MDs. <laughs> Let's go to the. Uh, we don't I want to talk about your knee now, dear. I know you have problems. <laughs> Just kidding. I feel bad. Hopefully, that's doing better. I'm I'm taking Feldane, and it kind of covers up the the the, the cancer. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Yeah, I uh, I don't know the answer to the particle question, the the trivia question, but I'm sure it definitely will approach uh, the number of the national debt. There got to be trillions of uh, those in the air in in, in an eight-hour day. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Even though I spent most of my professional life of looking at and measuring little particles in air. Dieter, we can give you the answer. Someone already texted it in. It was in excess of two tablespoons per day. Um, I think that's a little bit too high. If you were to take the National Ambient Air Quality Standards and multiply that one by, you know, and, 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 and calculate it through, um, and, and, and let's say a person at rest, you breathe about a half a liter's per breath and about 15 breaths per minute. And um, I, uh, I calculated that years ago with New York Air, and uh, it was a heck of a lot less. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, let's hope that our mucus escalator <laughs> in the lung works very nicely. Otherwise, you're not going to make it for a couple of years, after a couple of years. Anyway, so it's, it's, it's huge. There is no question about it. And there is, um, uh, Dr. Portnoy mentioned a couple of things with interaction. Fortunately, unfortunately, we had a program at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health where we took MDs and put them into, quote, the industrial hygiene department. And the beauty was that the industrial hygienists learned from the MDs and the MDs learned from uh, 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 the industrial hygienists. So um, uh, that, that was a great program. Unfortunately, somebody decided, it, decided uh, to uh, dump that program, and um, uh, th there were political reasons and personal reasons involved. It's very, very, very unfortunate that that happened. But we did exactly what Dr. Portnoy said. We are missing. We are. We, we got to get these people together. The other thing is, yeah, I spent approximately 16 or 17 years in universities. Maybe I was a slow learner. No, I wasn't. <laughs> but I did research, and yeah, at my master's thesis, where I developed, by the way, the neck um, uh, equivalent uh, for uh, car crashes. That is my neck. Every one of them uses it today. And I, I did research for at least a year. And then it took me another year to put everything together and publish it, and it is published. Um, so, yeah, I have earned degrees, and at some times, and certainly not Dr. Portnoy at all, I listened to him very carefully, and I like what he said, but they, I ran, ran into a couple of MDs who in no uncertain terms told me, I said, look, your shitty degree in uh, sciences, the doctor of science, is garbage. I'm an MD, and I'm much closer to God than you are. And um, well, if he thinks that, that's fine. I'm not going to buy him a beer anyway. But um, uh, it, it it bothers me that there is a, a call it arrogance. And I said, I'm an MD. I know everything. 
and you just have a doctorate in the sciences. Took you 15, 16 years, I think it was, something like that. And uh, your degree is worth garbage. I am the one. Well, I went through the science. <laughs> I, I studied um, physiology <laughs> and a little bit of anatomy and what have you. But I think, and, and, and Dr. Portner said that right in the beginning. We need to get these people together. God, we can learn from each other. And if I, I go in there, you know, I don't need a white shirt, a blue tie to do my job. I go in uh, barefoot in blue jeans and a, and a T-shirt. I don't have to. I'm not an MD who has to wear it. I'm not, again, I'm not saying anything against Dr. Portnoy. When I practice, I wear what I need for the job. If I have to crawl around in coal mines, I'm not going to wear a white shirt and a tie. I guarantee you. I wear a heart and, and a cap lamp. Um, the other thing, and I think, and Joe knows that. I, Joe and I have been talking about that for the last 10 years. Ventilation, ventilation, ventilation. And Dr. Portnoy said that also. I said, you know, there were these buttoned-up houses. There is something growing in the basement, and I really don't give a damn whether it's stocky buttress or uh, anything else. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't be there. And um, I have solved a lot of indoor air quality problems by doing nothing more than looking at the ventilation system and fix it. Yeah. So I think a lot of people ignore that, and I don't want to say that they don't know it. But there is something due to ventilation and to ASHRAE, the American Society of uh, Refrigeration and Air Conditioning Engineers and so on, and ventilation engineers. They have learned that now, too, and we are looking at it more carefully. You know, Dr. Portnoy, I, I want to follow up on what uh, Dieter said, Dr. Wild, but I, what I want to do is kind of take it a little, just a slightly different direction. Um, you we have a lot of environmental health or a lot of indoor air quality people that would like to work more with MDs. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, they do kind of get put off to the side a little bit. I'm, I'm wondering what's wrong with our approach? How, how can we improve our approach to work with people? Like, you know, obviously, you're, you're the easy guy to work with. You're interested in this. But those that aren't quite as interested, can you give us some tips on how we could work better with the medical community? Well, first of all, we need to start attending each other's conferences. Uh, I'm now a member of the IAQA. I've gone to Indoor Air and Healthy Homes Conference. Fascinating. I've been telling my colleagues they need to go to these conferences. Maybe some of uh, the environmental people should consider going to one of the uh, allergy conferences. Uh, maybe propose a, a workshop on environmental health uh, from that perspective. I know I've worked with Carl Grimes about that, and he's participated in some of those conferences. So if we start working at each other's conferences, that would help start the cross-fertilization. If you're an environmental assessment, a health specialist in a community, and you want to start working with allergy professionals, get on the phone, call the local, your the nearest allergy professional, and just introduce yourself. Tell them who you are, what you can do, maybe, you know, get together for lunch, uh, you know, and... Uh, and talk about what you can do maybe with the allergist in combination. And most allergists, I think you'll find, would be very receptive to that. They, they don't know who to call. Uh, they're afraid to just get in the yellow pages and look for environment. They don't even know what heading to look for. I don't think anybody uses yellow pages anymore. Anyway, you Google it or whatever. 
But uh, but if you call them up, my guess is that allergist will meet with you, we'll find out what you do, and we'll start sending patients to you, and you can start a collaboration that way. So I'd, I'd like to suggest that maybe we get started at the grassroots level uh, and, and do it that way. Okay. So well, my, my question's a follow-up to, to yours, Joe. Um, doctor, in order to get paid by Medicare, by insurance companies, and so on and so forth, there have to be, from my understanding, specific medical billing codes for this. Are there any specific medical billing codes that you know of that would cover this type of uh, assessment, for instance? That's something that we need to get. Uh, the AMA is in charge of the codes. We can use a miscellaneous code is what we do now, but we really need environmental assessment codes. And even more important, uh, with health plans, uh, if we can get prior authorization criteria agreed upon by medical directors, that's the approach that we've been using. If you show them that we aren't just going to do assessments on everybody, whether they need it or not, but that there are particular prior authorization criteria, Health plans can prior authorize it, and then you'll get paid regardless. Okay. So that, that can be a very powerful approach. All right. We, we, I promised myself today that we'd finish up on time because I know you're a busy man. We don't want to hold you over, but we have one last question. Val? Yes, doctor. Is there any final comment that you would like to add to the show? Uh, I just want to, uh, to say that uh, the medical the allergists and, that I know and the medical professionals that I work with, are ready to work with the environmental health professionals. We're both professionals. We're colleagues. We need to work together. We have a common interest. Let's make it happen. Uh, let's get going. Well, thank you. And, and we really appreciate it. And, and we look forward to talking to you more down the road and helping you along this path of, of bringing these groups together. We've had some of your group on the show. Kevin Kennedy's been on the show. Uh, you mentioned Carl Grimes. We've had him on several times discussing this whole issue. It's been about four years now that we've been talking about this. I think there's slow momentum building. A lot of it thanks to your push and, and Dr. Sublette, who we've had on the show, and Dr. Woolett and uh, a few others that we've had on the show. We really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to stop and see us on IAQ Radio. Well, it's been great being here. Thank you. Thanks again. All right. This is uh, Radio Joe Hughes here saying that uh, it's been another great, interesting week. Before we go, I also want to make sure we thank my co-host, the Z-Man. Another pleasurable experience. Back in, the, back, back together in the studio. Yeah. Of course, Val Bender for joining us this week. And yes, yes. special thanks to her father for trying to help out our, uh, our <laughs> sign <laughs> issues. Absolutely, absolutely. Next week will be even better. It sounds pretty good. Of course, to our engineer at the controls, Austin Stone Cold Novak, of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, but most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks again for joining us. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next edition of IAQ Radio.
this has been another IAQ Radio production. Recording has been completed. Now, somebody's got a problem.